Welcome back to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Michael, it's a pleasure to have you back on the show. Would you like to introduce yourself again for everybody out there listening? Yeah, thank you for having me on. My name is Michael Conswicks. I'm a historian who focuses on the culture and politics of the 1960s and 1970s. Uh, I'm currently the Associate Director of the Institute for Public Knowledge at New York University. What attracted you about the 60s and 70s? I mean, it's a fascinating time period for me just through diving the JFK stuff and the counterculture movement. So much was going on. Yeah, uh, I think what initially attracted me to the 1960s was just simply like digging through my dad's stuff, uh, looking at old records, old magazines and newspapers. Uh, you know, the Beatles, of course, are always iconic figures in, in popular culture. So learning about them and, and what was shaping their music, what was shaping some of the statements that they made. Learning about Woodstock, I remember as a kid, like maybe I was like in fifth grade taking out the Woodstock documentary. Uh, the Simpsons, you know, I'm a, as a lot of elder millennials, uh, huge Simpsons nerds. So whenever they would make 60s references, I would dig in and, and learn a little bit more. Uh, it's why as a kid, I actually I even dressed up as Richard Nixon for a, a school Halloween dance uh, because he was a character that frequently showed up on The Simpsons. Um, and so for some reason, I was just always drawn to that era, whether it was The Simpsons or Forrest Gump or just my father's, you know, attic. Um, it just it just seemed like a transformational time and one where history changed very quickly, uh, at least culturally. Um, and so just, you know, just looking at what his U.S., the United States looked like in 1964 and then what it looked like in 1970. I mean, that just tells such a dramatic story. So I was I was just always drawn to the era. And then as uh, as in graduate school, I continued to kind of flesh out this interest in the 1960s and, and focus on the anti-war movement of the Vietnam era. And then eventually that led me to the Nixon presidency. Uh, where I uh, started looking into some of the, the stories of internal resistance within the Nixon administration. Um, but in terms of, you know, like, why have I forever been interested in this era? I, I, I guess I've just kind of stumbled on an answer. It's it's just how how quickly things changed, uh, mostly as a result of the Vietnam War, but there was other factors uh, during the 1960s. Is there a lot of information on Nixon that necessarily doesn't get talked about even with academics? I mean, you can only teach so much in a class, but like I learned about the connections with Howard Hughes and all these types of things. I think mainly what gets talked about in the education system is Watergate. It is a big event. It's an explosive event, but that's like the only thing that a lot of people know a relationship with Nixon in the general public's mind. But I'm interested in some things you might have come across or some things that you can might be able to add that come into, I guess, Nixon's background or just what was going on in that time period that might maybe a lot of people don't really know a whole lot about. Yeah, I would even say with Watergate, the public only has a, a surface level understanding of the scandal. They know that there was a break in. They know that Nixon was guilty of a cover up. You know, Nixon is lying. And they also have a vague understanding that there are tapes that show that Nixon was lying and that Nixon was guilty of a cover up. Um, but, you know, it's been 50 years, so I can't really fault the public too much for this. There's a lot of other things to care about. But over time, like, the, the public's memory of Watergate or just our general understanding of Watergate is rather fuzzy. Uh, and as a result, it kind of gets rolled into a lot of other presidential scandals. So what I argue is that the public still doesn't, hasn't fully reckoned with the extent of, of Watergate, meaning not just the Watergate break-in, but everything that encompassed that scandal and everything that encompassed the culture inside the White House that created Watergate. Uh, and there are certainly historical links to what presidents and the FBI were doing for decades. Uh, but starting in 1971, Nixon brings a lot of those covert activities where, you know, various arms of the federal government are really kind of testing the Constitution in serious ways, if not just throwing it out the window. He brings all that into the White House in the summer of 1971. And so what what I think the public needs to learn more about is just how involved Nixon was with micromanaging everything that led up to Watergate. The other category I would say that doesn't get discussed enough is, and I think this is particularly relevant since Henry Kissinger passed away last week, uh, and he was Richard Nixon's national security advisor, later uh, secretary of state, 
one of the most powerful foreign policy officials in our nation's history. And live to be 100. That's the scary Live to be 100. Live to be 100. I mean, Richard Nixon died in 1994 at the age of uh, 81. <laughs> Henry Kissinger dies 30 years later, practically. And Dick uh, Cheney's still kicking, too. Dick Cheney's still alive. But, <laughs> but what the, the public still, even though there's a lot of archival records that have been released, the public still hasn't fully reckoned with Richard Nixon's foreign policy legacy. Um, particularly with just how insular Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger were, were in key decisions, uh, whether it's the invasion of Cambodia, uh, the, the decision to drag on the Vietnam War until 1973. Uh, there's been a lot of interesting research re regarding, you know, whether or not Nixon and Kissinger ever really thought they could, quote unquote, win that war. Um, and then the other thing I'll, I'll mention, aside from Vietnam, is Richard Nixon's and, and Kendrick Kissinger's legacy with regards to countries like Chile, uh, where Nixon and Kissinger and the CIA are willing to use American power abroad to overturn elections and prop up a fascist government uh, led by Pinochet that is in place for 16 years. Um, these are things that for those who are in the know and care about this era are aware of, um, but it, it still doesn't, I don't, I still don't think that the American public has fully wrestled with the overall foreign policy legacy of the Nixon Kissinger years. Um, and I, and I would say one last thing um, that's partially because some of it's not, not, it's not everything, but some of the best evidence can be found on the Nixon tapes and the public knows about the Nixon tapes they know that Nixon says a bunch of crazy stuff and that, you know, he says racist things and other people say racist things, but Nixon says racist things, anti-Semitic things and all the rest. They know that he's quite gossipy. But the tapes really do show the level of involvement that he has with key foreign policy moments. Um, uh, and and so and I and I and I think the main reason is, well, one, it's hard to listen to these those tapes. <laughs> the audio quality is not great. There's a lot of them. 3,000 hours are available to the public. And so as a result, there's still this sort of murky understanding about the level of Richard Nixon's duplicity, the level of the of, uh, deception that occurred during his presidency, and also just how much of a micromanager he was, particularly when it came to foreign policy. Do you think Nixon focused more on foreign activities, or do you think he was more obsessed with domestic? I feel like I know a lot more probably about his domestic activities when it comes like the hunt for Timothy Leary, the whole counterculture. I mean, towards like the ending up, well, I mean, towards more of like the ending of his presidency, the Vietnam War was more of a outspoken thing on the home front, which became a big problem for him. Oh, he was certainly obsessed with domestic uh, activities. He was certainly obsessed with keeping track of social movements and key cultural figures. That's certainly true. Um, but he was not particularly passionate about domestic policy. And so his interest in social movements was often wrapped up in his obsession with foreign policy, meaning that, you know, uh, social uh, social movements and and and, you know, activist leaders could interrupt his foreign policy goals. Uh, it's not the only reason why he was so obsessed with the new left and infiltrating the new left. Uh, but it was a an, a very important reason. You know, he believed that anti-war activists were having a profound impact on his ability to carry out the Vietnam War. And there's a lesson there. Um, there's a there's a great documentary that came out on PBS last year, created by former anti-war activists, but they were documentary filmmakers called The Movement and the Madman. Uh, that I encourage all your listeners and uh, and viewers to to look up. Uh, it's a it's a nice kind of 90 minute documentary that looks at how Richard Nixon certainly kept track of the anti-war movement, was obsessed with their activities, and also how the movement made a real impact in terms of delaying uh, bombing campaigns of North Vietnam. Uh, he believed that, you know, whenever there was an upsurge of anti-war sentiment, that would hurt his ability to carry out the war in Southeast Asia. Uh, and so to answer your question more directly, yes, he was obsessed with domestic activities, but it was rooted in the fact that he was particularly passionate about foreign policy. Why was he obsessed with places like Cambodia and Southeast Asia? Like, why was there this obsession with 
going overseas and dealing with a problem over there, being involved in another battle or something of that sort. Do you believe that was for the threat of communism? I mean, it just doesn't sound right when you say it out loud. Yeah, it's Nixon is uh, Nixon is a cold warrior. And even though his approach to fighting communism is is shaped by his slightly different views than Lyndon Johnson and John F. Kennedy and also significantly different historical circumstances. I mean, he becomes president in 1969. The war in Vietnam had been ha- occurring for four to five years at that point. Um, but he his political career is is connected to the Cold War. I mean, he becomes a congressman in 1946, uh, a senator in 1950, vice president in 1952. He is shaped by that early Cold War atmosphere. Uh, he ga- he gets a lot of uh, traction in his political career by attacking the Democrats for being soft on communism. Uh, in 1950, when he becomes senator of California, he de- he uh, defeats Helen Hagan Douglas, a popular progressive Democrat, uh, for being soft on communism. He calls her pink, not quite red, but pink. Uh, and you know, there's there's not so subtle kind of gender dynamics going on with that too. Uh, so Nixon fully bought into fight, you know, the idea that we needed to fight the Cold War aggressively and that we needed to contain communism at home. And so when he becomes president in 1969, while he is still a complicated figure in terms of incorporating a more realist approach to foreign policy with in terms of dealing with the major nations of the world, uh his his foreign policy and his approach to domestic affairs is still largely rooted in that early Cold War era. Uh, he is convinced that new left social movements and their leaders are a part of a communist plot to destroy America. Uh, his his analysis of, of the new left of the 60s and 70s is not very sophisticated because it's still bound to this Cold War understanding of of you know, the left's place within the United States, that the left, all different parts of the left, no matter what they say, is connected to communism abroad. And there's a kernel of truth to that. uh, But, you know, what he does not understand is that the new left is a far more complicated, far more independent uh, phenomenon, uh, particularly in the 1960s and 70s, than what he imagines it to be. And so that leads to a very kind of simplistic approach to dealing with the new left, uh, a paranoia, uh, a paranoia that defines much of his dealings with the new left, and eventually it leads to his downfall. Uh, something that even he concedes when he leaves office in the summer of 1974. Kind of similar to this like belief or this idea of American exceptionalism that seems to drive a lot of people's movements and kind of campaigns going forward. Nixon saw this as an American exceptionalism going against communists and anybody that was from this new left or this movement that was sparking out saying that, no, we shouldn't be in Vietnam or attacking any ideology that the government had at the time was seen as a threat. I mean, Daniel Ellsberg in the Pentagon Papers, when those started getting released and people started saying, oh, the war was never winnable and they were talking about it and we're not winning at all and we're just fighting an endless battle, it kind of starts shaking the public's confidence in their administration. Yeah, that's certainly true. Uh, I mean, that's that's the, in many ways, the beginning of the Watergate story is the release of the Pentagon Papers in June of 1971. When Daniel Ellsberg, who had become an anti-war activist in you know, 69, 1969, decides to leak the secret history of the Vietnam War, the Pentagon Papers, uh, to the mainstream media. Uh, it gets widely circulated and it gets challenged in the courts and then this goes to the Supreme Court. Nixon initially, his initial reaction to the Pentagon Papers story was... This is about Kennedy and Johnson. It's not about us. The history goes up to 1960 and 1969. So let's see if we can use this to our advantage. However, over time, especially after talking to Henry Kissinger, who believes that this is an, uh, a, a very serious thing that's going to shape their own dealings with the Vietnamese, Nixon eventually becomes infuriated and becomes even more convinced that Ellsberg is part of a broader conspiracy to bring down their administration. I mean, he uses those words and and you can hear them on the Nixon tapes in July of 1971. And you kind of, this is also the moment, it's weeks after the release of the Pentagon Papers that Nixon authorizes the creation of the plumber's unit. 
The plumbers unit are made up of ex-FBI and CIA men and also anti-Castro Cubans. And those are the guys who will eventually break into the Watergate uh, building the following year in the spring of 1972. But that starts with Daniel Ellsberg and it's, you know, it starts with the Pentagon Papers. And uh, forgive me if, we meant, if I mentioned this during our last conversation, but one of the first operations that the plumbers carry out in the summer of 1971 is they break into Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist's office. That's in August of 1971, perhaps early September. I have to double check, but it's certainly in the summer of 1971. And they break in, they rifle through the psychiatrist's files to dig up dirt on Ellsberg. They're convinced that Ellsberg is like a secret communist, that he's working with the Soviet Union. They find no evidence of that. All they find is that Ellsberg is understandably very stressed out uh, he's having marital problems. That's all they find. Uh, they leave behind some uh, drug paraphernalia to make it look like some crazy homeless drug addict broke in. But it's not a you know homeless drug addict. Instead, it's people who are being paid by the White House who are breaking into this office. It's It later becomes known as Watergate West when this becomes a public story two years later in 1973. Now, what did Richard Nixon know? I, I, I said that he authorized the creation of the plumbers unit. He thought this was an important operation because he wanted guys that were under his wing to carry out these kind of activities because he no longer trusted the FBI to do this. Uh, well, he never knew about any of their specific break-ins, but he came pretty close. Uh, there was one tape conversation that Nixon had with his top domestic advisor, John Ehrlichman, who was aware of what was happening out in uh, Los Angeles. And Ehrlichman told Nixon uh, there was an operation in, in Los Angeles that you don't need to know about. Uh, Nixon simply says, agreed. <laughs> what did Nixon exactly know? We can only speculate, but he certainly knew that Ellsberg, Ellsberg was based in Southern California. And he certainly knew that the plumbers were ramping up their activities. Uh, but that's the closest connection we have to Nixon's actually full knowledge of any sort of sort of break in during the Watergate era. Uh, you know, less than a year later, um, I mean, nine months later, these same burglars get caught at the Watergate Hotel. Now, what do you think? I mean, besides Watergate being the eventual thing, but what do you think also led up to that? I mean, obviously, media was reporting on Nixon, but Nixon was getting obviously severe paranoia from everything that was going on to the point. Danny Ellsberg's raid on his office, even though, you know, you can say that he wasn't attached through Watergate or anything of that sort. Nixon, there's not a trace back to him. Nixon resigned from it eventually. Nixon was becoming very paranoid to the point he wanted Hoover to help him out. So when he's getting to this point of paranoia, what do you think led to all that? I mean, it's not an obsession with communism anymore or looking at people as communists, but it's an obsession of do people have dirt on me? I mean, Danny Ellsberg obviously clearly had dirt on him uh, that Nixon thought, at least. And Nixon got to the point where it wasn't about trying to sort of out if he was a communist. It was about trying to find if he's got this dirt I can get rid of. I mean, eventually got paranoid of Hoover because Hoover had dirt on everybody. Right. Yeah. And uh, other historians have looked into Nixon's uh, treasonous, <laughs> uh, well, his basically committing treason during the 1968 campaign. Uh, this is something that had been gossiped about for decades, but historians like uh, like uh, Ken Hughes and a biographer by the name of John Farrell found evidence that Nixon, during the 1968 campaign, told his advisors to encourage uh, a woman by the name of Anna Chenault to tell the South Vietnamese government to not accept any sort of peace deal that was on the table in the fall of 1968. Lyndon Johnson, who had earlier that year announced that he would not run for re-election and focus on ending the Vietnam War, was desperately trying to, to announce some sort of peace. And, you know, and he certainly was guilty of playing politics of sorts, as any president does, with the war. He knew that if he announced that peace was at hand in October 1968, that would help the Democratic Party. But he had every right to do that as president of the United States. Richard Nixon was a private citizen. Uh, and as upset as he was over hearing reports that Johnson was trying to achieve this peace, he had no right to get involved in, in negotiations with the South Vietnamese. Uh, Anna Chenault tells the South Vietnamese government that you will get a better peace deal with Richard Nixon as president. 
And what historians found just several years ago, this was only happened in 2016, 2017, was that direct evidence that Richard Nixon and his chief of staff, then campaign manager, H.R. Haldeman, were fully aware of these efforts to interfere with the peace process. Uh, you can find it in H.R. Haldeman's notes, where he's talking to the president and they're fully aware that they're trying to stop this. The other evidence we have is that Lyndon Johnson was also aware of this. Um, Nixon thought that it was because that the FBI bugged his, his plane. That's what J. Edgar Hoover told him. Uh, there's That's not true. <laughs> it's We can only speculate why Hoover lied to Nixon about that. However, what was true was that the FBI, who bugged a lot of people, <laughs> um, were actually monitoring the South Vietnamese embassy. And so that's why they were aware of these conversations. And they were then reporting on this to Lyndon Johnson and telling Lyndon Johnson that there are private citizens being encouraged by the Nixon campaign to stop any sort of negotiations from going forward. Now, whether or not it was to enhance his political career. That's what he wanted yeah, to do. You want to I wait mean, till he's this elected. Is, this, is, this is happening as as Richard Nixon's lead in the polls is is dwindling. The election of 1968 is a is it's clear that's going to be very close. And Nixon is very concerned that if Johnson gets on TV and says we have a a, a very serious peace deal here, that could swing the election to Hubert Humphrey. So Johnson knows that this is happening, uh, and you can you can easily find evidence of this on YouTube. Johnson talks to uh, the minority Senate leader, uh, Everett Dirksen, tells him our friend from California is is committing treason. <laughs> uh, and it's clear he's talking to Richard Nixon. R Lyndon Johnson even calls Richard Nixon at one point and confronts him on this. Uh, Nixon does not own up <laughs> to, to what he's doing. He denies it. And Johnson is debating whether or not to go public with this information just days before the 1968 election. He eventually decides to not go public uh, because he's concerned about the impact this would have on U.S. foreign policy. Uh, and he cares about presidential norms. He doesn't want the public to know that their incoming president is committing treason. Uh, the important thing, though, in terms of deal, uh, fully understanding Nixon's paranoia while he's in office is... Nixon knows that Johnson has this information, and he assumes that if Johnson has this information, other key Democrats who are connected to Lyndon Johnson also have some version of this story. And it explains why in the summer of 1971, once he decides that the Ellsberg story is a serious one, that he becomes much more paranoid. Uh, it, it is why at one point he even suggests to his uh, to his aides, that they should find a way to blow up uh, Brookings Institute. Uh, this is an idea that's coming straight from the president of the United States. This is not just some like crazy ex-FBI guy like G. Gordon Liddy, who certainly offers up a lot of crazy ideas that fortunately never happen. They're relevant, but still you can, you know, you can see why someone would dismiss those ideas. No, the Brookings bombing comes straight from Richard Nixon, and you can hear it on the tapes. Uh, his aides know that it's insane and they slow walk in and eventually it fades away. But Richard Nixon is telling his guys, let's find a way to bomb this building. And, and while firefighters are putting out the fire, we can then steal files that the Democrats have about 1968. I mean, that's insane <laughs> that, that a president of the United States uh, is coming up with this idea. Um but it's rooted in this fear that the Democrats have serious dirt on him. Uh, now, the Brookings plot doesn't prove necessarily that it's all connected to Chenault in 1968, but it's a safe guess that that's what he's worried about, along with some other stories that you've already, you know, that we, that we, we talked about off camera. You know, what, what dirt do the Democrats have about his connection to Howard Hughes uh, and other stories? But the 1968 campaign is certainly on his mind during the uh, the summer of 1971. Could I ask about some of the things you mentioned off air about like the connections with Howard Hughes, the connections with Jimmy Hoffa? I mean, it's very strange for me just because I wasn't around in this time period. And I think a lot of my generation is just disconnected from the time period. But when you see Jimmy Hoffa with his middle finger like this in court, 
like that's just a framed poster right there to me i'm like these are actual mob figures that we hear about in movies that are actually walking around like average people and they're commanding a lot of respect too in the same way like people know who these guys are whether they're getting yelled at or whether they're getting admired i have no clue but they're walking around like celebrities and you find out that jimmy hoffa donated from the teamsters pension into richard nixon and then you find out howard hughes gave a donation to richard nixon in his campaign as well too through his assets of his brother um but a lot of this stuff has been like i said i wouldn't call that conspiracy i would call that more not fringe just because it's not widely known so a lot of people it makes it sound like a conspiracy but i think there's evidence and documentation to support some of these factors so i'm hoping you can maybe give me some information of your own to help kind of bolster up this fringe theory i would say yeah, sure. I mean, I, I especially I'm I'm very aware of the history with Howard Hughes. Uh, you know, the he, aviator man. That guy was in a, a movie about him. Yeah, and Hughes, you know, uh, you know, right, I mean, Hughes threw his money around in a lot of different places, but he did through Richard Nixon's brother uh, donate money to Richard Nixon, uh, and this becomes a story. And Nixon is enraged that Democrats are trying to make this a story, and the the reason that this is so relevant is in late 71 and early 72, Richard Nixon becomes obsessed with the idea that Larry O'Brien, the then chairman of the Democratic National Committee, uh, your your viewers may remember at least his name, that he was the commissioner of the NBA, which is why there was the Larry O'Brien trophy. But at this point, he's a former Kennedy guy, chairman of the Democratic National Committee. Nixon wants, wants his guys to expose any sort of connection uh, unethical or even illegal connection that Larry O'Brien has with Hughes, because Democrats are talking about his own connections to Hughes. He wants to show that they're hypocritical and that Larry O'Brien has this this shady connection to Howard Hughes. Uh, he pressures the IRS to audit Larry O'Brien. Uh, there are people that I write about in my book. Uh, they said no to Nixon that resist this order, but eventually they do bring in Larry O'Brien for an investigation, and all they find is that O'Brien did nothing unethical. Uh, and funny enough, he was actually owed a, a minor refund. <laughs> so in this end, this actually helped out Larry O'Brien. But that was that those conversations took place because of Nixon's own anger about, about the Hughes connection. Um, the other relevant thing is the reason that Watergate burglars, or at least one of the reasons why Watergate burglars, uh, well, why the plumbers break into the Watergate Hotel in the spring of 1972 was because Richard Nixon for months and months was obsessed with with O'Brien and Hughes. He was obsessed with trying to find any sort of dirt that would can make this a huge story during an election year. Uh, Nixon runs for re-election in 1972. He wins in a landslide, but he still wants to, to really weaponize this connection that Hughes has with Larry O'Brien. And while Richard, there's no evidence to suggest that Richard Nixon was aware of the Watergate break-in, and there's no evidence to suggest he was involved at any point in the planning of that break-in, it's not crazy to assume that the Watergate burglars thought this was a good idea because Richard Nixon, for months and months, was ranting about O'Brien having sort some sort of connection to Hughes. Uh, and so that is is at least part of the Watergate story. Uh and it's something that I think that uh, most of the public is not aware of. And it shows that, yes, while Nixon is not connected to the Watergate break-in, he certainly created the culture that led to that break-in. And so focusing on stories like the Hughes story or Ellsberg kind of fleshes out this narrative that Richard Nixon was much more involved in a lot of these covert activities, even if he wasn't directly involved in the planning of specific break-ins. I know we say that he wasn't directly involved, but what's his assistant's name? Uh, well, if you're talking about John Ehrlichman, John Ehrlichman was certainly connected to the Ellsberg break-in. Uh, I don't know if you're thinking of H.R. Haldeman or John Dean. One of those guys was in the room when the Watergate burglars were planning the break-in. And that was a sign to them that that was Nixon being in the room since Nixon oh, couldn't so John be Mitchell. there. So, yeah. I mean, John Mitchell certainly was a, a part of the planning that led to the Watergate break-in. And John Mitchell's the attorney general. He's not just some random campaign guy. He's the attorney general of the United States. Um, and and John Dean is a White House lawyer. So, yes, yeah, there's plenty of White House connections. Uh, a lot of Johns. Our... A lot of Johns. Yes, a lot of Johns. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of Bobs. Yeah. Um, and um, 
And so, but Richard Nixon himself was not connected. But yeah, the Watergate burglars certainly thought they were operating within the kind of umbrella of Nixon's, you know, broader approval. Um, even if he's not like actually specifically like pulling a lever that leads to some sort of break-in. The I'm trying to remember what oh god, I don't know if it's yeah, Gerald. So, what's Gerald Ford's connection with everything? Because J- Nixon pardoned Jimmy Hoffa when Jimmy Hoffa was sent to jail or whatever. But then also, Gerald Ford took away Nixon's um, indictment or whatever it was that was gone away, kind of pardoned him for that as well, too. So, Nixon just went off scot free. So, there's got to be something mysterious going on there. I hate to get into the conspiracy realm or anything, but I don't know if you came across of any information. It's kind of a random aside question, but it's something that's been kind of stumped for me where I was like, if I'm the general public and I see that our president or Richard Dixon just pardoned Jimmy Hoffa, a criminal that has just been laid out by Bobby Kennedy and so many others, and I think came out later that he was a bad guy, so they locked him up, but then he gets pardoned, then Gerald Ford pardons Nixon later for his whole you know, I guess crap that was going on during Watergate. I would have to feel like that everyone would be aware that there was just intense corruption going on in their establishment. Well, that's certainly uh, a a feeling that's shared by a lot of people. That was the best way I could get to that question. I can tell you that much. Well, I mean, that's yeah. I mean, that's certainly a, something that a lot of people are feeling in 1974, 75, 76, and beyond. Um, one could even argue to this day, uh, you know, this feeling that elites are not held accountable for their crimes. Um, That's and, more than a feeling, my friend, more than yes, a feeling. Yeah, yeah. And and Ford's pardon of, of Nixon is certainly part of that story. Uh, Nixon resigns before he can get impeached and presumably convicted, uh, sorry, indicted. And then, you know, that would lead to a, a presumably a, a criminal trial. And so Ford pardons Nixon before any of that happens. Um in terms of Ford's own connection to Nixon, well, one of the reasons he becomes vice president in the fall of 1973 is that he didn't have much of a connection to Richard Nixon. He was a considered to be an affable, popular congressman from Michigan within the context of the 1970s, sort of a moderate Republican. Um, but this is another thing that people sometimes forget is uh, you know, Richard Nixon's vice president, Spiro Agnew, resigned in uh, in October of 1973. Uh, and that's for actually a scandal has nothing to do with Watergate. That was just his own personal corruption, <laughs> uh, taking taking money both when he was governor and then as vice president, uh, governor of Maryland, and then later as vice president. And he's forced to resign in October of 1973 at a period where Nixon is on the ropes. Uh, the public is starting to pay more and more attention to to Watergate. Nixon's approve rating is dipping below 40%. And there's actually even talks of a double impeachment in October of 1973. So it's one of the reasons why Agnew is sort of pushed out and pressured to resign, even by Republicans, uh, in order to protect Richard Nixon. They bring in Gerald Ford, this guy who has very little connection to Richard Nixon. But then, you know, 10 months later, he pardons Richard Nixon. And almost immediately, there's all these theories that you know, there was some sort of secret deal before between Ford and Nixon, uh, either that this was how Ford became vice president, or that because Richard Nixon, you know, decided to resign when he did, he only did so because he made sort of some sort of deal with Gerald Ford. And I know people have done research on this. I'm not particularly an expert, but it's my understanding that while there were some people within the White House, particularly Al Haig, chief of staff, who were trying to make some sort of deal or at least were hinting at it, uh, there's no direct evidence. There's no smoking gun that shows definitively that Gerald Ford was a part of that deal. Um, instead, it's it's I would argue it's almost more infuriating that Gerald Ford comes to this decision because he's he cares about, uh, you know, political norms. And he believes that it would be an embarrassment to the United States to have a former president on trial or in prison. Uh, And he believes that it's in the interest of the nation to get beyond what he calls our long national nightmare. Uh, And that is, uh, to say the least, uh, a very unfortunate decision, one that basically sends a message to powerful politicians, particularly presidents, that you are above the law. And it's something that I think has shaped our political culture of the last 50 years in profound ways. Um, having said that, though, in 1974, polls showed that 
almost two to one publics, the, the American public rejected Ford's pardon of Nixon. They thought it was a terrible thing. And it may have actually cost Gerald Ford the 1976 election. Uh, it's at least the conventional wisdom to emerge at that time. But the troublesome thing that happens in the decades following that decision um, is a poll in 1999 showed that the exact opposite, that you know, approximately 65% of the American people thought that Ford did the right thing and that it was the responsible thing to do. Um, now, that poll is taken in the late 90s. It's taken at a time where I think the American public is sick and tired about the Clinton impeachment uh, scandal because it's on the news every day for, for over a year. So that's a factor. But it also emerges at a time where the American public believes that you know bipartisanship and is important and 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 not dwelling on presidential scandals is is wait so it overrides justice like i don't I'm not i guess but it's, it's, it's born out of this late 90s moment where the public is at least willing to not like dwell on presidential scandals it's also born out of a moment where increasingly historians are starting to give nixon a second look uh and starting to adopt kind of a revisionist a softer approach to dealing with richard nixon um however there hasn't been a poll taken on Ford's part of Nixon since then. And my suspicion is that based on recent events, particularly, you know, everything that encompassed the Trump presidency, not not just that, but, you know, I mean, the Trump presidency offered some pretty gross forms of corruption and violations of the Constitution that, you know, are impossible to ignore. Um, I'd be willing to bet that you would see a different result if Americans were asked today, what do you think of Ford's pardon of Nixon? And I would hope that more Americans now are willing to, to embrace the idea that a president should be actually be on trial, whether they're a Republican or Democrat. If there's clear evidence of wrongdoing, they should be on trial and perhaps even face prison time. Um, I'll, I'll, one last thing, because I realize I'm, I'm ranting a little bit, but one other thing, one other option for Gerald Ford was he could have pardoned Richard Nixon after a trial. And while that probably still would have infuriated the American public, we at least would have gotten more information from Richard Nixon. Now, he he was a smart guy. He was a trained lawyer. Maybe he would have kept on uh, finding, he would have found ways to kind of uh, evade any sort of responsibility for Watergate. But at least having a president on trial would have sent some sort of message to the American public that, Look, even a president has to answer for their crimes. Uh, but Ford, even he he chose not to do that, and so as a result, Richard Nixon never really had to answer for his crimes. Uh, and it's interesting to see how the public understands this. And as I said, I, I hope that if a poll was taken today in 2023, we would get a different result than what transpired in 1999. Why is there a revisionist history on Nixon with uh? other academics or just other people looking deeper into Nixon? Well, I mean, revisionism always happens when it comes, I mean, it's part of the historical process, uh, but it's, you know, kind of revisionist trends are particularly more dramatic uh, when it comes to presidents. You know, the first wave of literature about a president usually is defined by journalistic accounts or memoirs. Uh, it's, 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 more defined by partisan divisions. It's inevitable when you're talking about a president of the United States. And what, it's not inevitable, but what almost always happens is the next stage usually leads to some sort of revision. Um, and more often than not, particularly when it comes to Republican presidents and academic historians tend to be more on the liberal side of things, you have kind of a more nuanced attempt to to almost defend the president's record. And so what happened with Richard Nixon starting in the late 80s, but this becomes quite prominent in the 90s, particularly after his death in 1994, is you have a wave of liberal historians who start to argue that Richard Nixon maybe wasn't so bad. And they're they are influenced by the Reagan revolution of the 80s, where they argue, well, Reagan's you know conservative policies were far to the right of Nixon's, uh, they're willing to praise Richard Nixon for his domestic accomplishments. Uh, the EPA is created uh, under his watch. You have Title IX. Nixon's uh, peace with China uh, is an important accomplishment. 
And so you have a wave of historians who, who start to publish books that argue that Watergate should be the only thing that defines his legacy, which, you know, fair enough. I mean, one scandal shouldn't define any president's legacy. Uh, but these historians, I think, in some ways, counteract the journalistic accounts, the, you know, the Woodward Bernstein kind of school of thought with literature that kind of goes too far in the other direction, that only focuses on Richard Nixon's policy record. I'll, I'll add that much of this literature is shaped by, yes, White House records. However, most, not all, but most of this literature is shaped by in, during a time where the White House tapes were not accessible to the public. There were transcripts, uh, but actual audio, actual the, the bulk of the White House tapes do not start to come out until the end of the 90s. And that's because of a historian, Stanley Cutler, pressured the federal government, I mean, actually sued the, the, the National Archives to, to release the tapes. That only happens in the late 90s. And so a lot of this revisionist literature, even if it, if they make some good points about, you know, Nixon's domestic policy accomplishments, do not include the White House tapes. And the White House tapes do not cover everything, but I would argue they are the most important source when, when understanding Nixon's presidency. Sure, it's an unfair standard because no other president had this sort of access where, you know, you now can listen to Nixon's thoughts from 40, you know, uh, from 50 years ago. Uh, but they do you tell you quite a bit in terms of what shaped both Rich, Richard Nixon's domestic and foreign policy. And so what I argue in my book is that if you're going to offer up some sort of more nuanced, forgiving take on Richard Nixon, you need to incorporate the White House tapes into your evaluation of this presidency. I think my opinion has evolved that everyone in our presidency and even, I mean, I mean, JFK has his downsides. I'm not going to downplay that, but there's just a lot of people in there that I just, I don't know if this, every president is just messed up or has some type of weird thing that goes on, but it's shocking that you don't see that side of things. I mean, you hear about it with Nixon probably a little bit, but not the full extent, but with every president, Johnson, um, even I had a White House correspondent on my show and I told him about Johnson walking around naked and he pissed on a Secret Service member's shoes. And he's like, that sounds like a conspiracy. I was like, you work in the ethics department of the White House. You left during the Trump administration. You don't know this? And he was like, no, that's, you got to prove it with a document. So I put a disclaimer in the episode and I showed it. He didn't message me back, but I was just being honest. I was like, that's something a lot of people don't know. And if you're calling that a conspiracy, then where do we get the information or documentation to understand other things that seem a CIA heart attack gun? Sounds like a damn conspiracy. But that was in the church committee yeah. and they're showing it on video. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you're talking about, you know, presidents as personalities, it's not a conspiracy to say that, you know, if you're a president of the United States and you get to that position of power. Just think about it for more than a few seconds. You're Big going fat to be, cigar, and you get the. I mean, you're going to be sort of a weird person. <laughs> I mean, you're not an ordinary person. So these are, to say the least. I mean, and they vary from you know. I mean, I don't want to say every single person is a, every single president is a a strange and awful person, but you know, it's it's it's. They they are they are not ordinary, and and they are going to be they are going to be. Uh, they're going to have huge egos. They're they are going to be uh, they're going to view themselves as kind of messianic figures, and and I think you know we have to we have to understand that when evaluating each of these guys, um, and that's not to say that you can't like a president, but you have to concede that you know if you're in that that position, you're going to almost inevitably do awful things. Um, now, like I said, I argue that Richard Nixon's abuses of power are exceptional, given just the nature of them and that just how he brought all these crimes uh, inside of the White House. He and tried that, to abuse the presidential power that I think he thought it had more than what it really does. Yeah, yeah, I think that's certainly true. Um, so it's not a conspiracy to say, and I'm someone that pushes back on not uh, on a fair share of conspiracy theories. But it's not a conspiracy to say that these presidents are are, are weird fellows. <laughs> they're they're weird guys. Um, and and while Nixon's tape tapes certainly exposes this in a way that you don't see with any other president, 
um, you know, you get a little bit from the Johnson tapes, a little bit from the Kennedy tapes, and then a little bit even from memoirs. I think it's really interesting. I'm teaching a class right now, the American presidency. And one thing that comes up is uh, even in these memoirs that are in some ways a sanitized version of presidential histories, because these are presidents trying to promote their own legacies. I mean, that's that's what the memoirs is trying to do. You'll, you still get a sense of just how isolated these different figures are uh, and how, and this is why, this is perhaps one of the reasons why I push back on some conspiracy theories is if you closely study the presidency, you see just how most of their decisions, not all, but most of the decisions are guided by short-term thinking. And it's much more driven by who's in the room. It's driven by emotion. And there's a certain level of contingency that I think is important. It's not to say that ideology doesn't matter. Doesn't, that's not to say that these structures don't matter. They certainly do matter. And one, I would, I would even say they're, they're, those things matter quite a bit. However, I think if you study the presidency, contingency is, is incredibly important in terms of explaining uh, not only day-to-day -day events, but some defining moments of the American presidency. Well, since you push back on conspiracies, I just got to ask, Kennedy assassination, come on now. <laughs> so what's my take? Yeah, that's fine if you don't agree. I've done a lot of research and like spoke to Blakey from the HSCA about it, um, who did prove probable conspiracy in the second. I just think there's a lot more. I'm not going to fight the fight of who's the shooter or anything. I just think we know a lot more than we did in 63 about what the hell was going on in our institutions. And there's a lot of people that were doing some weird things and in weird locations where they shouldn't have been. Gerald Ford moving the back wound up on Kennedy's back up six inches. And he, his sort of thing to say to make the medical report more accurate. So that's that's proven. You can Google that right now. It'll pop up on your thing. There's a back wound of Kennedy right here. He moved it up six inches when the Warren report came out. Every other commission member told him to change it back. He said he would. He didn't. He also denied uh, during the Rockefeller Commission. Um, he tried to stop that report and commission from doing its investigation of the CIA's intelligence activities when it was being produced. He did that twice. He also fed information from the Warren Commission to J. Edgar Hoover. He was the inside man on the Warren Commission. That's on the History Channel's website. So I'm not that's more well known. I didn't know if you knew that, but the conspiracy thing, that's one for me where I'm like, come on now. Tell me you're in. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I don't I don't mean to 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 wimp out on this i guess but i, I i'm bit of a, i'm a bit of an agnostic i was a, admittedly a conspiracy theory buff uh when i first started getting into u.s history i i, I watched jf oliver stone's jfk over and over again when i was like in high school and college uh you know and i i, I still to this day i think don delillo's uh libra is yeah. a really fascinating book i will admit though i haven't dug deep into the conspiracy theory archive and the files uh all this evidence that's out there in uh, probably at least 15 or 20 years so i'm rusty however having said that i mean my position is my position is shaped by a few things but one a skepticism that the forces within the federal government that certainly were capable of assassinating uh, leaders that they did not like, and were certainly guilty of doing that abroad. It's not a conspiracy. Theory. And domestically, Fred Hampton's one. Well, yeah, but I mean, they're certainly capable of that. But what I'm skeptical of is that someone like Kennedy, that they would actually hate Kennedy that much to lead to that. And so, and but there's a let let me let me just kind of maybe offer up too much nuance, but the Kennedy conspiracy theory is a lot more convincing to me if you focus on Cuba. Yeah. Because that's when you see real anger coming from different parts of the CIA, of course, organized crime. And I, I, like I said, that's where you can make a very convincing case that something is going on and there is a real conspiracy to kill a president. Like I said, I have to do more research. I, I, I'm sorry if that sounds like a cop. No, no, that's, I, that's I, fine. I'm still I'm committed fine. to my wishy-washy agnostic position. What I do push back on, though, is Vietnam. 
And while I love JFK when I watched it and to this, I mean, I still find it a fascinating film. It's a fun film. I don't buy the fact that the so-called deep state were afraid that Kennedy was not going to carry out the Vietnam War. Kennedy, even though there were important developments during his presidency and he showed signs of, of becoming less hawkish, the guy was still shaped by the Cold War, still had a long history of being fairly tough on communism. And he was running for re-election in 1964. That's fair. I could see I could I could see him caving to anti-communist hysteria, the belief in the domino theory, and escalating the war in Vietnam. Maybe not in the same way Johnson did, but I just have a hard time buying the argument that Vietnam was a factor in the the the, the killing of Kennedy. Um, and then I'll I'll just say one one other thing. I, I've seen I've seen some people speculate that the Kennedy conspiracy may not have actually had anything to do with Kennedy himself, but it had to do with Oswald. And Oswald, obviously, his own history is very shady. Yeah, well, his intelligence and, connections are all over yeah, the place. And so, like, you know, so one and once again, I'll I'll say I'm still an agnostic, but the idea that Oswald was some sort of CIA asset who went crazy. And then the government is just covering this up because they're afraid of what the Oswald story will unveil. I don't see that as completely insane, but I would have to do more research. I got um some good clips on my YouTube shorts that you should probably check out. I mean, I try and go by what I can prove through a document. The real evidence, and I think what is now verifiably proven, is that all these agencies had 201 files on Lee Harvey Oswald. And the rationale, it's not conspiracy thinking, it's because this person worked for military at the time in the YouTube program, he was going to another country and defecting his U.S. citizenship. If you're returning back to the United States, I swear to God, I hope our intelligence agencies are putting that man on a list for something just because you want to be aware. The suspicious part is, is that they had him on a list for three years. And then the week of the assassination, they dropped the list, the threat of him being on there, and all Secret Service is supposed to be warned of any threats to the president's life, and he did not pop up on the list where he would have been if he wasn't dropped off there. And also the route change went right by Oswald's work where he got there a month before Kennedy's route was even published. So there is a lot of skepticism. Like I said, I don't even fight the fight if Lee Harvey Oswald is innocent or guilty or not, but there's covert operations. Northwoods is a great example that was going on about threatening to blow up a whatever, an airliner and blame it on the Cubans just so you have a reason to go invade Cuba. I mean, Kennedy denied that plan. That is factual. That is real. That is historically accurate. And you can read the documents as well, too, where it's like this is our mindset, whether our government's just talking about it. That's a dangerous thing. And that's like, for me, it's like, I mean, you can, I'm not going to fight the Vietnam thing because I honestly don't know. I couldn't tell you if he was going to pull out or not. I think there was evidence to support and there's evidence to say that he wasn't. So yeah, I there mean, were, there were uh, minor, there were minor troop withdrawals in the fall of 63 that people point to. And so I'd say, you know, all right, that's a fair point. However, you know, there's roughly 15,000 U.S. soldiers in yeah. the fall of 63, removing just a few thousand something that can easily be reversed to me it just enhances history a little bit more i mean even diving into something like i don't i do believe conspiracy but like i don't argue with people about it just because i think it has enhanced my own knowledge of understanding the times as well too like one thing for me that interests me in mob figures and i'm not saying the mob killed kennedy i'm not saying that at all i mean kennedy's brain went missing we still don't know where that is since 1966 so i don't think the mob has access There's to a kennedy. great pearl jam song called uh, brain of jay uh, but I just go, I had to learn more about Jimmy Hoffa. I had to learn and then find out connections with Richard Nixon. Then you start diving into Richard Nixon and it just kind of shows, I'm sure you've discovered this through your own educational career, just as a historian looking through stuff is that everything starts kind of diving you into another subject. And you realize that the surface layer that you might be taught in maybe grade school or something like that is not what you start uncovering when you start diving down deep into it. I mean, a lot of people don't know the Johnson scandals or every president has a scandal of some sort. And I mean, out of everything you've learned through history to the point you're at now, what have you learned truly about democracy, press, media, um, just understanding perspective a little bit more as well too? I mean, I've talked to 1500 something people ever with wilding perspectives, but I've kind of learned that I don't know anything and it's kind of just 
sorting out and understanding information on and understanding information and then processing it. But there's always more. And that's kind of a challenge for me because you're never going to be able to know everything. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I think I'll sort of answer your question in a roundabout way, but may, it maybe it'll tie up a few things. I, I noticed on on your YouTube page that you recently did some episodes about Fred Hampton. Uh, and that's, you know, there's clear cut evidence that the FBI worked with the Chicago Police Department to assassinate a young, charismatic Black Panther leader. Uh, in a time where the Black Panthers are serious, are there's serious infiltration going on, and other leaders are acting in very eccentric ways. Hampton is this young, charismatic guy who's talking about, you know, an interracial working class coalition. Uh, he's comparatively more pragmatic, yet still deeply radical. And he's assassinated by the federal government. I mean, the FBI working in the Chicago Police Department in December of 1969, during a period where you have a, a surge of protests across the country. Uh, that's not a coincidence. That was a targeted assassination. Yeah, well, William O'Neill admitted to feeding the, he gave him the floor plan. I do want to say in hindsight, we got to look at, I know everyone calls Will, like, William O'Neill a rat and he was a rat and it was a horrible thing what led to that he's a cock yeah <laughs> but he also killed himself because and I mean he would live with that and had to relocate and ended up moving back to Chicago but I think that a lot of people don't really focus on that so obviously he lived with a lot of regret I'm not justifying what he did at all but I just think if anything we should talk more about it I mean Fred Hampton in general his anniversary was for, the fourth we're recording this on the fifth yeah and yeah actually the anniversary was just yesterday um and the reason I bring this up, it's it's been on my mind quite a bit in my new book project. I'm doing a biography of the anti-war activist, founder of SDS, Tom Hayden. And he was part of the Chicago conspiracy trial, uh, was in Chicago uh, when Fred Hampton was killed, and actually went to the site, uh, went to the apartment and, and viewed uh, the scene. And he was incredibly distraught. And this was a period of time where Tom Hayden, who long been known as the kind of pragmatic radical starts to enter a period where he's even playing around with the idea of maybe joining the underground uh he does not but the assassination of fred hampton just you know shakes him to the core and and it does that to many others in the new left uh and the reason i think this is important to bring up is if you have a well-documented story like Fred Hampton. And for years, the official story was, we don't know, we don't know, you know, it's, we don't have enough evidence. But then you get the evidence, and then it's clearly documented. It's not crazy to then think, well, what else, what else, you know, is going on? So based on what was happening in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and beyond, of course, but particularly during that time period, the evidence that we do have well, of course, lead people to think that other things are happening. So this is this is a, a, a byproduct of of uh, a a a government run amok that's not accountable to any sort of democratic norms, and that's going to naturally lead people to become very cynical and more interested in conspiracy theories. Uh, so I often push back on this. And sometimes I include and includes arguing with myself this like impulse that many historians have to just completely poo-poo any any sort of conspiracy theory. You know, let's have a conversation like the one we're having now. Let's not adopt a condescending attitude, and let's look at the facts because the facts do say that quite a bit of 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 there there were targeted assassinations, there were warrantless wiretaps, there was serious infiltration of 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 activists just because they they oppose their government. Um, so let's have that conversation and try to figure out with the evidence that we have now what the truth was, because I think that's what historians should be interested in doing. Can I ask if you think I'm a conspiracy theorist? I don't know you well enough. It sounds like you're more open to, to being interested in conspiracy theories than perhaps. But I did am. you know about the Gerald Ford thing? Did you know about the six? Inch I feel like I remember hearing about that, but it, it sounds familiar. But no, I did. I did not know that off the top of my head. All right. That's fair. <laughs> um, now, I appreciate talk about, though. 
I always uh, appreciate, especially because you, like you said, you looked at my YouTube channel. I mean, a lot of people would just look and then you've been back back on the show, but it, it's just about having and sharing your perspective. You don't have to agree with the guests. You don't have to agree with that. It's just about kind of having the conversation and talking about it. I mean, if anything, it enriches history too. I mean, I have people that I don't agree with on certain subjects, not this one. It's just other past ones or something. I had someone comment on Fred Hampton's thing saying it's all a lie. Government didn't do anything wrong. I was like, I'm pretty sure it's exposed now that the Chicago police were just pieces of shit. Um, but okay. But that's I mean, Hollywood just... does it. Well, I mean, you know, Oliver Stone's a different figure, but Hollywood doesn't make a picture like they did a couple years ago. of Black Panther or the Judas and Black Messiah. Yeah. But that's even that they made Fred look a little bit more thuggish than he actually was i mean 21 year old kid versus a 35 year old actor playing uh right yeah it's um it's yeah but still you don't get to that point until there's this like consensus that yes the federal government killed fred hampton the real thing is about him being drugged because he didn't wake up during that raid yeah yeah and so as i said um we can debate these individual stories but what is certainly true is that what the federal government was doing, different parts of the federal government was doing during the Cold War, uh, contributed to a a growing sense of of cynicism, uh, nihilism, and and and, parano- and much and justifiable paranoia about what was transpiring without any sort of public accountability. Well, Michael, I appreciate the time you gave me to talk on my show, but is there a place where people can find your links, your book link, Twitter, uh, Instagram, Facebook, any other links that you have? Sure. Yeah, I appreciate that. I'm on Twitter uh, as Mike Conswix, uh, recently joined Blue Sky. You can find me there. And you can also uh, you know, check out my website, michaelconswix.com. That's K-O-N-C-E-W-I-C-Z. Uh, you can learn about my book, They Said No to Nixon. And also, uh, I'll post periodic updates about my research on Tom Hayden. That'll be a book that comes out through University of California Press in 2026. I'm going to link all your links in the description. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. And thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank. Stay tuned for our next episode.